Amen. Thank you, Sean. Hey, before we jump into Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, I wanted to share a brief update about our culture conference. This will be our third annual cult- culture conference. And uh, we, we've set out uh, over the last couple of years to create conversations around cultural issues for one specific reason, and that is to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our goal is to look at the winds of culture not so that we can engage in conversations that produce controversy or that are challenging, but so that we can learn how to leverage the cultural tide in order that we could further the gospel of Jesus Christ and ultimately further the mission of the church. That's exactly um, our mission as a church. And so that's the only reason why we would do this kind of thing. And so with that in mind, uh, this year we're doing our culture conference. It's called It's Political, um, which uh, is sort of obvious you know why we would do it, but maybe not so obvious um, to some. So in order to clarify what we're trying to get at this uh, weekend, or it's in a couple weeks, but um, I wanted you to hear from Rick Langer. Uh, We have a couple of guys from Biola University who have a project called the Winsome Conviction Project. Um, They've written a couple of books. They've got some podcasts and there's some, a great conversation around this topic. Um, So I wanted you to hear directly from Rick for just a quick minute. So take a look at this video. Hi, I'm Rick Langer, and Mike Ahn and I are really looking forward to joining you for a weekend together. Mike and I are two of the co-directors at the Winsome Conviction Project here at Biola, and one of the things I pay a fair bit of attention to is what's called extreme polarization, and I just saw a chart the other day that uh, was indicating the increasing number of people who have extremely polarized views of members of the opposite political party. Now, you might wonder what extremely polarized means. Glad you asked. It means that they view the other party, members of the other party, as closed-minded, unintelligent, dishonest, lazy, and immoral. That number has doubled in the past six years, from about 25% to about 50% of the population. Now, I don't know about you, but I was already dreading uh, 2024 repeat of the 2020 election cycle. But now we get to repeat that whole process with the same candidates and people in all likelihood in a country that has about twice as much extreme polarization as it did before. You know, I'm never shocked that the culture is increasingly polarized because it's increasingly opposed to the gospel. But I do often, I do find it really distressing that the church is mirroring the culture when it comes to this kind of polarization. Instead of our religion transforming our politics, our politics have reshaped our religious practice and our personal relationships. We talk about the cancel culture. I'm more worried about the cancel friendships, the cancel family, and worst of all, the cancel church. In the cancel culture, disagreement means cancellation, but you know, I would really love for us to begin to think differently about that, to think disagreement means conversation, not cancellation. It might be a hard conversation, but it never needs to be the end of a conversation and certainly not the end of a friendship, the end of a family or the end of a church. Now, how is this possible? Well, that's what we'll talk about on February 23rd and 24th. We'll talk about skills that it takes to be able to bridge divisions over divisive and contentious issues, issues about which we form deep convictions, but about which we don't always agree. So it should be a wonderful time, and my hope is it'll be more than that as well, that it might give you some tools to retain, to deepen, to restore, perhaps, uh, some of the most valuable things to all of us, our personal relationships with one another. So we're really excited about uh, these guys coming to share. Um, the feedback that I got when we first announced we were going to do this conference um, for most people was, wow, you guys are brave. 
kind of to try to take on that. And, and I, I, I think pause kind of even, even reflection on that comment and realize, um, you know, it always kind of forces the question, well, should we be doing this? Is this the right thing? And I realized the reason we are is because we really don't feel like we have a choice. In, in other words, in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for the church, he's praying for the disciples um, and trying to give and provide clear direction for their future, for our future. He says, I pray that they may be one as we are one. He's praying that we would be one as he's one with the Father so that the world would know that I sent them and that I love them. So if the world's going to know that we were sent by God and that God loves them, it's going to come because the church is the most unified place on the planet. And so our goal is to live the words of Jesus, is to walk the words of Jesus in pursuing unity and love for one another um, in a way that will stand countercultural to every other community and institution on the planet. So that's why we're having this conversation. We feel it's very important that we continue to move towards unity. So that's in a couple of weeks. Uh, in fact, two weeks from this morning, um, Dr. Rick Langer, who you just heard in the video, he'll be here um, preaching for us that Sunday morning, but the conference is Friday evening and Saturday morning. So pay close attention to that. It's online. There's some info on that for you, but we'd love to have you here for that weekend, and we're going to have some important conversations together. Uh, We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, so if you'll open your Bibles, um, get ready. We're going to read a few verses here from chapter 7, but speaking of politics, uh, think about what comes to mind when I throw out a few of these names. How about Corey Ten Boom? What comes to mind? How about the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., or Abraham Lincoln, or Billy Graham? How about Jeffrey Epstein? or Donald J. Trump, or Joseph Biden. What comes to mind when I say these names is a, is a totally diverse reaction and emotion for so many of you, and it's all almost entirely associated with the character of the people that I mention. When I say a name, you don't know them simply by name, you know them by character. And so many of them, as I mention these names, Uh, You know them and recognize them because their lives were lived with so much utmost integrity and conviction. It drove the things that they did and said. Or the inverse may be true, that their character is so lacking integrity that they've become known for inconsistency or hypocrisy or flattery. But the purpose is a good name comes from good character. A good name will be earned in good character. And it's precisely what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is getting at this morning. He wants us to understand the importance of good character as it relates to your name. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now when you read that, there's a really curious connection between those two lines, right? I read that and don't expect for him to talk about a good name and good character being associated with the day of death. It's an odd connection he's making, but when you explore a little further, you realize that the Kohelet here is combining the day of death with the good name because your name doesn't mean much when you're born, right? I mean, as much as you want to invest in the names of your children and give them the best name that's going to set them up for success and all of the virtue and the character that you consider when you name your children, all of that is is unrealized potential. 
It's just opportunity at that point. Because a good name means nothing at the point of birth. It's hope at best. But the day of birth means the onset of death. The painful journey has commenced. The story has begun. And from here forward, from the day of birth until the day of death, it only gets harder, right? And that's the message from Ecclesiastes. It's a a dark message. It's a cynical message, but that's exactly what he's getting at. It's going to start to get harder. It's going to get more complex. It's going to have more challenges, or as our good friend, Pastor Tom Farrell says, stays like this a long time before it gets any better. It's not trending in a good pattern until we get to the point where we can celebrate ultimately for eternity. In Psalm chapter 90, the psalmist writes, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom to consider the length, the breadth of our life which is exactly what our preacher in Ecclesiastes is getting at this morning in chapter 7. As we get to the end of the chapter, the preacher here teaches us the value of a good name, teaches us to consider the breadth of our life as it relates to our name, and ultimately is going to give us some pretty clear pointers on how to do so. So if we dig a little bit in chapter 7 here, we might actually get a how to have a good name from the preacher in Ecclesiastes. So join me in chapter 7, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Let me pray before I read. Father, we recognize that this is your inspired word that is authoritative. That, Lord, the scripture, as we even just read it out loud right now, has the power to change and transform the way we think about you and the way we think about ourselves. So, Lord, it's not without weight or reverence that we come before your word this morning. Father, would you have the freedom to speak to your people in the room this morning? In your name I pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, at first glance, you could read through this and sort of feel like this is a proverbial chapter listed with a lot of disconnected thoughts 
And some of those phrases and lines should appear almost as independent that he's giving us these little strings of wisdom, like you'd read in Proverbs, right? We have 31 chapters of Proverbs, and there's a whole string of lines that oftentimes are connected and sometimes are not connected, disconnected. And this feels like one of those more disconnected passages until you explore a little bit further and you start reading this in context and begin to understand that there is a continuous flow of thought here. And to get there, I backed up into chapter six. And if I go back and consider what he's after in chapter six, so what's the on-ramp to get to this point in scripture? He's talking about in chapter six, the futility of riches. He's absolving this sentiment that if we only build a strong enough empire, if we only establish ourselves on this earth well enough, if you leave a legacy and create a heritage for yourself, then maybe, just maybe, Your life on this earth will somehow outlive your existence. And he says that's simply not true. It's futile to think that way because when you die, everything is gone. And again, a pretty cynical approach basically says it's just a vapor. That's what he's getting at here. So we run up to chapter 7 with this context in mind, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who's going to speak of what's after your life? No, there's no reason for you to establish your life on on earth as it relates to some kind of physical empire because it's all going to go away. Who could speak of what's going to exist beyond your life? The only thing remaining, the only thing that will transcend your physical life on this earth is your name. So he begins chapter 7 with a very clear value of name. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. You're not going to live forever. The only thing that will be left when you're gone is your name. So consider your name. What does it mean now and what will it mean when you're gone? And here the the preacher is considering ointment. This is not the ointment we think of like Neosporin. You know, you put on a cut. This is in Hebrew a valuable perfume like a like a fragrant offering. It's one of the most precious and regarded products of, an, of adornment and anointment. So when he says a good name is like precious ointment, it's, we have a hard time connecting that to much because we don't value ointments the way that they valued ointment. But what he's basically saying is a good name is better than a great perfume. Now, in the Erky house, we don't have a lot of fragrances. Um, we're kind of take more of the natural approach. Some of you are like, yeah, we know. <laughs> But there's still something to be said for fragrance, right? And I remember early on when Cheryl and I were dating, maybe even in just our early years of marriage, um, there was a fragrance. I don't know if it was perfume or lotion or what it was, but that was like, I knew what Cheryl smelled like. And if she left an article of clothing and she was gone, it's like, oh, I just, I want to, I want to smell, you know, that's that lingering smell, you know, did you guys do this? Come on, don't make me feel dumb. It's Valentine's Day, you know, like. I find a sweatshirt from my wife and I'm like, oh, I could smell her. It's like she's here, you know. Like, I know you guys did that. But a good smell lingers, right? Like a fragrance that's, it's like instantly recalling memory. Like it can transport you right there into that place in time. You know, you smell something and it takes you right back there. And that's exactly what he's saying is there's a good fragrance. There's this lingering smell that leaves you longing for maybe for your beloved in my case, that leaves you longing for someone. 
and a good name will leave them longing. So as we progress through this passage, the question becomes, is your name like a lingering scent or is it a stench? Do you, do you leave a, a smell that people remember for the wrong reasons because of your name, because of your character? And he's going to give us, like I said, a little bit of a how-to. How to have a good name. How to have a lingering fragrance. So let's keep reading. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. If we go right into the second verse, he says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now, you might think this is not connected. You read this and think, how does that have anything to do with a name? But what he's saying is there is character development in the seasons of your life, in the moments and opportunities that you have to grow strength of character. And they happen sometimes at funerals, not just at birthdays. So he says, attend funerals, not just birthdays. That's, the, that's my summary of his statement here in verse 2. It feels sort of morbid to say that you would go to the house of mourning for it's better than feasting. And it's also counter to so much of what's in Ecclesiastes, right? You read through and there's a lot of language that says celebrate, drink, eat, enjoy. Your life is short. It's like a vapor. So embrace these moments and seasons. He's not preaching against a party. He's simply saying don't ignore the house of mourning Don't ignore the funeral for the sake of a good party. Why? Because there the living, he says, that's you and I, the living will lay to heart the end of all mankind. At funerals, you will be forced to consider the brevity of your life and be sobered by the potency of the name that lies before you. In a way that no other experience in your life on this earth can do. Birthday parties and baby showers are not a time to consider the brevity of life. Those are a time to celebrate. Imagine going to a baby shower and going, man, I wonder how long this kid's going to live. <laughs> right? You're know, like thinking, well, I hope he finishes school. I wonder what they'll actually do in their life. You know, like nobody does that. That's not the kind of questions. It's a hope-filled time. Hopes run high. Cares are simple. I wonder when she'll take her first steps or I wonder what her first words will be or what she'll become when she grows up, right? Those are all the kind of optimistic, cheerful conversations we have at baby showers. It's not a time to consider the vapor that is your life and existence on this earth. There's a time for excitement, a time for anticipation, but He says, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, to have a good name, it is better that you attend funerals. It is better that you enter the house of mourning. It will force reflection on your life that not much else can produce. So don't ignore it. And take the time when the time exists to reflect as often as you celebrate. Look at verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, mirth is probably not a word you use in your typical vocabulary. House of mirth, something we say. But the Hebrew word here, mirth, is the word samha. It's this blithsome glee, like happy-go-lucky, carefree party. Ignore what's really troubling you kind of mentality. Press on. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at this permission to feel. Do you remember that? And we were looking in Ecclesiastes at some of the seasons that present themselves to you in your life. And the message that we heard from the preacher in Ecclesiastes a few weeks ago is the permission to feel, permission to sit in those seasons as they come. And that is the house of reflections, the house of mourning. I have this image in my mind as I read this teaching of my life lived on a neighborhood street. You know that I'm walking down the street. This is my life. And I walk up to the door of the house of mourning. And there are people inside who are weeping. And I'm about to enter when I hear down the street a party. And so I slowly work my way backwards down the steps of the porch and back out into the street and slither down the road beyond the house of mourning to attend the party. And I crack open the cooler and cheers to my new friends and live the carefree life with the weeping in my wake. And that's all he's calling our attention to is don't do that. Don't skip over the house of mourning when there's opportunity for reflection, when there's opportunity for deep and meaningful relational connection in the house of weeping for the sake of a party so that you could ignore all of the emotion and the feeling and the pain that exists in that house and quickly move past it to the house of mirth, which is a good word, a party. It doesn't sound like it, but it is. That's why I love Ecclesiastes, because he's not preaching against the party. There's so many verses. Just enjoy the party, man. Go have a good time with your friends. Enjoy the, the work and the labor and the life that God has laid out for you. There's nothing wrong with a good celebration. He's simply saying, don't move too quickly past the house of mourning. Stop. Enter the room. Allow your soul to be shaped by the depth of relationship that you might find there. That's where character comes from. That's how you'll get a good name. Sitting in that house, walking through pain. He says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Again, it seems so backwards, so odd to say that sadness is good, it's better. But he's saying, no, no, it's good for the heart because sadness, allowing yourself to feel for a minute is going to shape who you are and you will have depth of character and your name will mean more if you allow for yourself to sit in that house. There's this uh, new research by Dr. Todd Hall. Uh, a Rosemead professor of psychology um, down there at Biola University. And um, Todd and I worked together years ago uh, when he was doing this uh, inventory. He called it the spiritual transformation inventory. And what he was trying to do is develop a survey where you could actually gauge or measure spiritual growth or spiritual maturity, which is the lifelong, you know, probably centuries long project for all Christians because it's so immeasurable, right? It's like grasping the wind to try to actually measure if we're growing or growing in depth of character. But Todd's done a great job of, of trying to summarize all of these thoughts. And so he's got a new workout um, called Relational Spirituality. It's, a, it's an academic textbook for um, psychology students, but the relational spirituality research basically has identified three things that he believes produce true spiritual growth and maturity, true depth. So if you experience these three things, 
then you actually are trending towards spiritual growth and depth. And here's the three things. The first one is no surprise. It's contemplative prayer. That if you live a lifestyle of contemplative prayer where you put your feet, where you put yourself before the feet of Jesus, where you allow for him to speak to you and you speak to him and you allow for scripture to inform your prayer and you allow for God to meet you, then you become transformed and spiritually mature. The second one is long-term deep friendship. That long-term deep relationship actually over time produces spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And the third one, he says, the third thing that's guaranteed to produce some sort of spiritual maturity and growth is suffering. Contemplative prayer, long-term relationship or friendship, and suffering. Not in any way, shape, or form a surprise to the Kohelet in Ecclesiastes. No surprise to us as we read this that the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, enter the house of sorrow. Sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad that the relational connection you might find, the depth of friendship you might find in the house of sorrow, that the soul-shaping hard that you experience as you walk through tragedy, suffering, that contemplative prayer and that process of going before your creator, God, and humbling yourself before him and allowing for him to shape who you are. These are the things that actually grow you and shape your character and ultimately will earn you a good name. He's on to something here. Don't skip past the house of sorrow. The party next door will always be waiting. Don't move too quickly through seasons of life. And the latter half of wisdom uh, literature here, or at least the passage, it becomes a, a bit more um, logical. You read through these first few verses and it feels heavy and, you know, all about suffering and sadness and, and all of the, um, the ideas of death that would ultimately shape your view. And, and he takes a turn here to be a bit more practical in wisdom, but, but still, I think, a clear thread. So let's take a look at the latter half. Verse 5. He says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. He's saying, accept rebuke, dodge flattery. Maybe one of the most classic wisdom phrases in all of the wisdom literature, if you go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, even some of the Psalms, you read through this, yes, accept correction, accept reproof. We hear it over and over. In fact, there are 20 different verses in Proverbs alone about accepting rebuke. I'm not going to take you through all of them, but listen to a few of them. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 32. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs chapter 10, 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. And my personal favorite, Proverbs chapter 12, verse one, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> That's ESV. It's a good translation, solid. Why is reproof so hard? Well, according to Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse five, because there's an alternative to reproof. Do you know what it is? It's the song of fools, flattery. For every one person you could find who's willing to honestly give you correction in love, who's really honestly willing to want to help you be constructed in a 
character development kind of way, you could find 10 people who are willing to flatter you. Don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about, right? You're a great guy. You're a great girl. Don't listen to their correction or their reproof. They're just a prude who doesn't want you to have any fun. That's the message of, that's the way of the world. That's the ease in friendship, the way we think of it on a superficial level. Gosh, don't upset the apple cart all the time. You're not going to have any friends. Why are you always going to tell people what they're doing wrong? It's not welcomed in our society the way that the preacher here is welcoming it. Accept reproof. Not the song of flattery. There's plenty of flattery to go around. It's far more fun to hear, but it won't earn you a good name. Not the way rebuke will. It won't develop and build character. Not the way correction will. It will not shape you into a fragrant aroma that's pleasant for people to be around. Not the way rebuke will. And when you've received correction, he says, heed good advice. Choose integrity over opportunity. Look with me at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Here's how the NIV reads. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool. No matter the wording, the heart of the original text here is unjust gain. I think it's, whether it's translated oppression or extortion, I think it's taking advantage of another human being. That's what he's saying. Don't leverage others. Don't leverage the relationship you have with others for your own gain. Giving into the belief that if you're going to get a good name for yourself, well, then you need to leverage relationships and resources in order to ensure your own success. Sorry, Matt, I keep hitting this microphone. I won't. I'll try to stop. Calm down a little bit. There's a a great book by Andy Crouch. Maybe some of you have read it. Uh, He's a pastor, great theologian, has written a lot on leadership. Um, Andy Crouch wrote a book called Strong and Weak. And in his book, he talks about the comparison between authority and vulnerability. And he gives us this little matrix. Basically, he says, when you combine the appropriate authority with the appropriate vulnerability, you trend up and to the right towards human flourishing. And this is a leadership principle. So a leader who has the appropriate authority and leverages their own vulnerability can trend others towards human flourishing. But inversely, if you have authority with no vulnerability, you trend towards exploitation, taking advantage of others. Or if you have vulnerability without authority, then you trend towards suffering or withdraw. That as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, that taking advantage, extortion, turns a wise person into a fool. It's one of the most tempting and luring principles of our current society. When you think about climbing corporate ladders or getting ahead, you know, at work and these other things, the best way our world has to offer for you to get ahead is to leverage the relationship that you have with others in order to get there, right? Think of an image of a corporate ladder and you have people piled on top of each other for you to step on in order to get your way up the ladder. That's the way of the world, whether you want to admit it or not. And he's saying, no, this will never produce good, lasting fragrance. This will never produce a good and lasting name. It'll turn a wise person into a fool. 
Andy Crouch says, exploitation is authority without vulnerability. It's the most seductive and dangerous quadrant. It lures with coping mechanisms that tell us we're in control as we shed our own vulnerability and exploit others. That is the the path that the world offers. And it might even look like the path toward a good name. That's the problem. Think, well, if I'm going to make a name for myself, if my name wants to be a good fragrance anointment, well, then I've got to get ahead. And if I'm going to get ahead, then I've got to leverage all these resources. No, that turns a wise person into a fool, as it says in verse 7. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 29 says, Whoever troubles, and this word troubles is afflicts, his own household will inherit the wind. You know what it'll get you? If you exploit others, it's going to get you vapor, wind, something you can't grab onto. Making a name for myself at the expense of others is no name at all. A good name will only come with integrity, not opportunism. And finally, verse 8, be patient when you're provoked. Read with me. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And he finishes almost where he began. In my mind, he circles back to this idea of patience for the sake of a good name. A lifetime of study, a lifetime of research or applying yourself, or all of the riches in the world, for that matter, will never earn you patience. You cannot buy patience. You cannot buy a good name, a good aroma. It just can't simply be purchased. An eternity of instruction will not bring pause to the hasty, which is why patience is one of the most frustrating and elusive virtues in all of Scripture, because you can't purchase it. There's no method. There's no how-to You just simply have to endure and earn it. And a pretty clear path here outlined in the first six or seven verses in chapter seven of Ecclesiastes of how to earn patience by attending funerals, by reflecting in the house of sorrow, by accepting rebuke, by choosing integrity, not exploitation. That will earn you patience. That will diffuse your haste, your reaction time. And here's where the preacher comes full circle back to verse 1. The value of a good name is measured by patience. And in this case, measures your character. And character can't be purchased. There's no shortcut. It must be earned. Patience has to be earned in the house of mourning. Patience has to be earned through the circumstances of our life. It's one small decision of integrity after another. It's accepting rebuke and not embracing flattery. Earned with the decision, one after another, considering the brevity of your life, choosing not to skip past the hard things or embracing the bad with the good and quietly allow for the sovereign king of heaven to shape us with his providential care and his love to become the men and the women that he desires for us to become. Men and women who are of strong character, who carry a strong name. Now, we get through this chapter and hopefully, you know, I've made a good case that your name matters. It's, it's good to have a good name, right? 
It's worth developing, building, stretching your character in order that you have a good name. But if I extracted this chapter from God's word, this could read simply like a good leadership manual for any other institution, any lifestyle, any religion. These are just good principles, right? So what does it mean to us who claim to be followers of Jesus that we would have a good name? Because what's the purpose if we have a whole bunch of good names that we leave behind? What long-term gain is there in our community, in our family, in our church for a bunch of people who've lived good lives of integrity? That's exactly what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you do. Your life's a vapor. You're going to die. And you're not going to leave anything behind except for maybe a good name. So still, what is the purpose in that? And if you're like me and you, you're relatively cynical, um, which I am, no surprise there, that you read something like this and go, great, okay, good name. I'm going to go through hard things for the purpose of what? Getting a good name. So what? What, is it, what does that have to do with anything as it relates to my view of eternity and my view of my relationship with Jesus? Well, it's answered in the New Testament. And I think we have to use New Testament clear principles of what God is calling us to in order to interpret a, a passage like this in Ecclesiastes. So go with me real quick. And I promise we'll wrap soon. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul happens to talk about this very topic. He happens to address the same principle of allowing for you to develop a fragrant name. And there's a purpose behind it. He says in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who is in Christ, always leads us in the triumphal procession and through us, that's you and me. Pause right there. Through us, through a Tascadero Bible Church attenders, members, people of God in the room right here this morning. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. What's the value of a good name? What's the purpose of living to earn character, to build and develop this fragrance so that when you meet people, you leave them lingering, wanting more, not a stench, but a pleasant fragrance. What's the purpose of that? He says, through you, he delivers the fragrance of knowledge everywhere, that God is using your fragrance, your name, to deliver the knowledge of God everywhere. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ that you my friends bring a fragrance whether it be from those who are going from death to death or those from life to life. Either way, you are shining and showing and displaying the light and the love of Jesus Christ to a fallen world that is decaying in their own stench. So why should I pursue good character? Why should I follow these principles? Because by doing so, you become the pleasant aroma of Christ to a world that knows no fragrance like Jesus and that you stand out so starkly in contrast to the stench of the world that the world would be lured to the love and the light of Jesus by us. It's everything. 
it's critically important then that what we're doing is lingering a pleasant fragrance to the world around us. But if we, if we don't, here's the flip side of that. It's why we're having conversations like this culture conference, because if we don't, if we don't choose this path, the path of integrity, if we leverage and exploit others, if we don't listen to rebuke or correction, if we just embrace flattery, then we become the very stench of the world and we look the same as the world and we smell the same as the world and no one is drawn to the light and the love of Jesus Christ through our aroma. So join me in becoming a fragrance to the community around us by pursuing a good name, which comes from good character. We pray, Father, I recognize and confess even now this morning, just in brief reflection, I've been a stench at times to others. Whether it be my embracing of flattery, the, the desire to quickly move past pain for celebration, whether it be to, to continue, Lord, to ignore rebuke. Lord, we've, we've delivered an aroma that's not pleasing to others around us. And for that, I confess. And I ask that you would renew my spirit, my soul, renew us all as a church, sanctify our church, Lord. Wash us with the water of the word to give us a pleasant, refreshing fragrance to the world around us. A good name that's more valuable than ointment. A good name, Lord, that represents the name of Jesus. And a good name, Lord, that's gonna outlive our time on this earth in an eternal way for the good of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, for choosing to redeem us and use us. Continue to grow and develop and strengthen our character and give us a good name. In your name I pray, amen.